Hi, I'm Jeff Gomez, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. My guest today is Jeff Gomez, CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment. He is a transmedia producer and writer. He is a brand strategist. He is a blogger. He does a lot of thinking and writing and talking about the roles of modern storytelling and how social networks and communities, online communities, can drive incredible fandom and also a very deeply persistent engagement in a brand's story and story world. We touched upon things like the Wall Street bets and GameStop stock purchasing and and the stonks movement. We talked about Arab Spring movement. We talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer fandom, Harry Potter fandom, you know, whatever, Lord of the Rings, Marvel, and how all of these things actually share a lot of commonalities. And when you break it down and you look at the workings of how all of these kind of communities um, sprung up, and and what they have in common, you'll find some really, really interesting threads that bind them all together. If you're interested in the world of storytelling in the 21st century and how modern story worlds evolve and grow and persist through their communities, how the role of storyteller versus audience is is shifting and evolving as we become more and more integrated into technology and allow technology to become more and more integrated into our daily lives, I think you'll find this conversation with Jeff Gomez very interesting. I hope you enjoy. All right, let's jump in. First of all, Jeff, Hi, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, um, tremendous to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. So why don't we start with the intros? Maybe tell us all a little bit about yourself, your career, and, and your major professional passions, I guess. What's your thing? What are you known for? What are you most excited about? What do you focus on? Sure. I'm Jeff Gomez. I'm the CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment. We're a New York-based production company that specializes in the development of uh, massive story worlds, shared universes, and narratives that are capable of traversing across multiple media platforms. I, I came to this as as a child who was a nerdy and into <laughs> into fantasy and science fiction Sounds the bigger the universe yeah the bigger the universe the better for me i loved to get lost in story worlds when i was young because the real world was not often kind to me <laughs> but i wasn't just satisfied with the escape i uh, i was lonely i wanted to connect with people so I took lessons from the stories that I enjoyed to climbing that ladder to connect with others and uh, ultimately to maybe a little bit of success. Wow. That's really impactful that like you found solace in story worlds and and that that solace then turned into ambition and ultimately career. I, I, my guess is that probably holds true for a lot of geeks and nerds who maybe growing up in the 70s and 80s, back when playing Dungeons and Dragons and being super deep into Tolkien and Star Trek, 
didn't exactly earn you whatever star position on the football team. That's um, for sure. I imagine more than a few of us probably had those lonely nights where, you know, a good Tolkien book or, I don't know, a sort of a deep dive into a Star Trek uh, series was probably how we spent our Fridays and Saturdays. Ben, there was no community back yeah. then. There was no way really to connect with very many others, maybe one or two in school or, mm-hmm. or, or things like that. So there was, there was a dissatisfaction for me, a, a palpable kind of, of loneliness. I didn't want to stay there. While others that I knew were happy to stay there, I, I felt that I needed to find my way out. But without letting go of the things that I loved, the, the stories that I enjoyed. Gosh, I, wow, I, I really hear that. I, I remember trying to find friends to come over to my house on a Friday or Saturday night to play. What I used to like to do is I would collect those Marvel comic cards. Oh, yeah. And I would like to sit down. And this is not me as like an eight-year-old. Like, this is me as like a 14-year-old. And I'm supposed to be going out and, I don't know, whatever, wrecking cars or whatever I'm supposed to be doing. But instead, (laughs) what I want to do is sit down and build our own story world games with these Marvel trading cards where it's you you pull a few different cards from the random deck and then basically have to invent a story as to how those three guys or women or whatever, how their their powers could synergize to create some sort of, you know, mega team. That was my idea of a great <laughs> Friday night. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, when I was younger, it was it was toys, mm. those proto-action figures from Planet of the Apes and yeah. uh, the Mego Dracula and my plastic dinosaurs, which were much smaller than the action figures, and somehow <laughs> figuring out what kind of metaverse these things could coexist within. How come the puny human is so much bigger than the mega dinosaur? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so I've been in the gaming industry now for, I guess, 20-something years. I I got my start in around 2000, spent a bunch of time at Ubisoft and Warner Brothers and that kind of thing. And I feel like I remember an era, maybe 2003, 2004, somewhere around there, Mm -hmm. where it felt like transmedia was very buzzy. Lots of people were talking about transmedia. Assassin's Creed was launching and there was this idea of, oh, there's going to be the movie, there's going to be the TV show, there's going to be the the video game, there's going to be the comic series. Transmedia is going to be the future of entertainment. And it felt like it died out a bit. And then it feels to me like it's coming back now. Do you agree with this? Am I, would you say I'm, is that perception aligned with yours? Ben, for the audience, let's touch on at least my perception of what transmedia is. Exactly. Great place to start. Sure. Look, when I was uh, young, I I had this strange opportunity to move out of New York City and and to Hawaii, which was 6,000 miles closer to Japan, which is something that that I really uh, appreciated because I loved Godzilla, the big kaiju uh, narratives, and, and was introduced there to the notion of Japanese media mix. Uh, This is where the same intellectual property manifested itself in different ways across different media. So the object of the game is that if you loved a certain Japanese superhero, you could watch the TV series, listen to the 45 RPM record Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the theme of the series, 
go out and buy the toys, find manga, comic mm-hmm. books of the hero. And then the heroes would come live to the Honolulu International Coliseum so you could <laughs> see an actual show that felt as if it all was all in canon. This was absolutely thrilling to me. It was like going from the desert into this lush uh, oasis of fantasy content. And, and it, was, it was like nothing uh, I had seen. This is the 1970s where you were lucky if... Uh, you know, any character in a cartoon show remembered what happened last oh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> it was the reset button. Absolutely. Every TV show, every comedy, every drama was just, you know, a, a routine that repeated and repeated. These uh, were universes that were expansive in Japanese media mix, and I really loved that. So when I had to come back to New York, ultimately, I missed that profoundly and wondered how. Hollywood and American entertainment could emulate that that kind of persistence of the story world, of the intellectual property. That's a great word, yeah, the persistence of it. When, when I saw that the internet for the first time, wasn't even called the internet, where I saw that, that people were playing Dungeons and Dragons, which was something that I loved, but online with each other, where you could have these kind of communal narratives, story-driven gaming, participative gaming through the internet, it really rang a bell for me and let me come to the conclusion that this interconnectivity was going to somehow help us immerse ourselves in these story worlds. And I began to practice that once I entered into the comic book and video game industry in the 1990s. The the proto-transmedia projects that I worked on were really finding ways at uh, Valiant Comics, where I worked, to connect the comic book superheroes in the comics to the video game projects that I was in charge of trying to find the right mix for. In doing so, what I would do is take the essence of that character and match it to the strengths of the technology at hand, that being the Nintendo 64 platform. And I began to study interactive storytelling and in, in the uh, the capabilities of that platform to tell a story. And this was before Zelda 64 came out. This was the uh, 18 months before the platform even premiered. So I was guessing, but my imagination and my understanding of game theory from my Dungeons and Dragons days helped me to write a, a concept document for a video game which I had never even known that they had existed before. And that's where Turok, Dinosaur Hunter, came from. And I was called on to help produce that game. And while we were doing so, all the lore, all the story content around that game that wouldn't fit into the console, the the little 64-bit cartridge, I threw it on the internet Mm -hmm. by having an intern help me set up a website. And other narrative materials were assigned to comic books and things like that to support the game with backstory and and things like that. And then suddenly we had a little transmedia activation. And, And the key, Ben, to all of that, the thing that really drove it home for me was that I decided to participate in that transmedia communication by making myself available as a creator on that project. 
something no other video game designer wanted to do because we <laughs> yeah. already knew oh, yeah. that fans could be nasty oh, yeah. <laughs> on those bulletin boards <laughs> and demanding and uh, difficult and so forth. But I didn't care. I, I wanted to talk to them, get their uh, feedback from the game and incorporate what it is that they wished for in the sequel. And, and in doing so, in, in directly communicating with those fans, they were so amazed that anybody would talk to them that it formed this kind of super bond, mm. this hyper loyalty, which became for me an aspect of transmedia storytelling that I think is the most important and that uh, big Hollywood finds to be the least important, (laughs) even to this day. The the direct dialogue, authentic dialogue with your audience, the thing that Homer was doing when he came to town and went to the tavern the night before he started reciting the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Connecting with his audience. There you go. So this was the proto-transmedia implementation that I brought to uh, Starlight Runner in 2000. And, and all, I was just using that word trans-media to try and explain to my potential clients what it is that we could do for them. It was Henry Jenkins who popularized the, the non-hyphenated version of the word, which right. I immediately bowed to. And, and There's the hard work, getting rid of the hyphen. Look, Ben, the, the, the fact of the matter is the word itself was a device to formalize what it is that I did because nobody understood what the hell I was talking about. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and, and to try and organize a way to communicate to my clients the value of a certain technique, a certain process that had no name. So there was a lot of promotion that I was doing behind it. And I had uh, a bunch of colleagues in, in the industry uh, that agreed with this and, and were talking about it. So like anything, it, it turned into a kind of buzzword, but, but buzzwords come and go, and I knew that, and, and I had been practicing it, as had many of my colleagues, and certainly the Japanese and people elsewhere in the world, steadily for years and years. So it was the term that, that came and went in terms of popularity, <laughs> but the practice actually persisted, evolved, and became what it is today. Very interesting. I, I I hadn't actually made the connection about the Japanese mixed media realm versus the Western sort of reset, complete lack of persistency. And it's really interesting that a trip to Hawaii for you was the bridge that, you know, gave you that access. And this concept of the persistency leads mm-hmm. to a term that I hear you using a lot. You've used it already on this podcast a bunch of times, story world. So. Sure. Can we do a, the same thing you sort of did with transmedia? Can you define story world and what's the difference between a story world and a story? Sure, sure. A, 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 traditionally, a, a story focuses in on a protagonist and we pretty much stick with that protagonist uh, or, or the narrative is built around that protagonist. So think of uh, a, a story traditional narrative, almost as if it's a dream, Mm -hmm. right? The author is dreaming up uh, a a character and everything around that character is kind of a projection of that character. The world is serving that character thematically. 
the supporting characters are, the antagonists are. And as the character moves through the the kind of hero's journey narrative, refuses the call, goes out into the world, is Mm -hmm. mentored, has to take on these conflicts, gets the treasure and and returns home. Has some Um, sort of dark moment where he thinks there's no way I can possibly succeed and yet somehow overcomes. Absolutely, yes. So that is all. So story generally is in service to to character. A story world is a, a kind of uh, a fictional universe where there are many of those or where the characters, at least initially, are designed so that you are thinking that they may have their own lives, their own stories to tell, and, and could well move away from our protagonist and establish themselves elsewhere in this world and continue to, to, to persist. And then as the story world progresses, each of these characters form their own narrative centers. They become the points of and, and facets on a greater kind of gem-like universe that, and it's not like they have nothing in common with the original protagonist because a good story world still has something to say, still has a powerful set of messages to convey, but they can do so in in a story world in an array of very different ways. And, and, and so what is established is a systemic narrative mm-hmm. or a super narrative that has a past, a present, a future, and can continue to expand. So examples of story worlds, as opposed to traditional stories that I enjoyed, were, for example, the Marvel Universe, Mm -hmm. where there was an array of characters, a a kind of core set of values and sensibilities that that bound them all together in in this universe, Mm -hmm. but very different types of stories, even different, different genres. Tolkien informed his all of his characters with this tremendous sense of history. Middle Earth had ages and ages of historic content. There were different cultures that were devised and so forth. So although the Lord of the Rings served Frodo in his hero's journey, as did Star Wars with Luke Skywalker, you could tell that a great deal of thought was put into every aspect of this thing, and it became a a world, Mm -hmm. a universe that can be enjoyed. And it, it it feels to me like converging and diverging paths is is also somehow a commonality or a common theme in a lot of these sort of more expansive story worlds where some character will appear, walk beside our hero for a, two, a few chapters and then disappear again. And as the participant, you're almost more interested in where that character has gone and what they've gone to. You almost want to just follow them and be like, oh, like, this thread that they're on might be even more interested than the main one. There's something about that sort of diverging of pathways in a story world that can feel really compelling when the characters are interesting. Like The Walking Dead, I think, it feels like they do a pretty good job of that. What you're talking about is best exemplified to me by what's happened recently on The Mandalorian. We have these characters, Ahsoka Tano or Luke Skywalker, who come into the story briefly. And and the response is just overwhelming because we have such tremendous affection for those characters and haven't seen them in a while. And then they just leave. They, right. they do their thing and they go away. And you wonder where they've been. 
previous to their appearance and where they're going. And of course, we're going to see little hints of where they're going in the months and years to come. So that, yes, very much exemplifies that mm. kind of larger universe approach story world. A lot of the questions uh, that I have for you here talk about new ways of storytelling. And, and again, you've got a lot to say about that. But mm. to me, the the ties that bind are the rise of social and digital and, and how they just, they fundamentally change what it means to tell a story, what it means to be a storyteller, what it means to be a fan, what it means to be a participant. I mean, it's all a complex interwoven tapestry in a way yes. that it wasn't once upon a time. So again, I'm sure we'll spend a, a, a big chunk of our interview talking about that. But before we get into the hows and whys, I thought it would just be fun to set the stage a little. So do you have some favorite examples of this in recent years? Just really interesting phenomenon of kind of changes in storytelling? The changes have impacted the entertainment world, but also the social and geopolitical world. You can take your pick. I started seeing it with bulletin boards in okay. the 90s and how strong that fan response can be and how the anonymity of the internet made you a little braver, mm -hmm. perhaps a little crasser, and, and able to really let the storyteller have it or express their passion incredibly. Some of the big highlights for me, the game-changing moments, were when I started to see the proliferation of uh, fan fiction and, okay. and fan movies in the uh, late 90s and, and early aughts, where more and more fans uh, gained this power to, to tell stories, to supplement their love with creative expression. Another highlight was, believe it or not, Twilight, because I was at the San Diego Comic-Con where the actors from those movies were first arriving for the first film, and, and where young women, girls and their moms, were lined out the door and down the block, altering forever the ratio of gender oh, that's <laughs> in, really in attendance good. at, at oh, Comic-Con. And I, I was thrilled, to tell you the truth. I, I'm not, I wasn't a big fan of Twilight, but I was thrilled that, that the mix was going to change and that there would be this incredible uh, representation. And more recently, just the ability for fans to, to rally and to respond to, to efforts ar around transmedia, the ability to parse the hints and clues, mm -hmm, to, to mm -hmm. go through trailers one frame at a time to, to, uh, to discern things. I think has helped to build a new appreciation for story and for narrative and for the craft of, of filmmaking and, and video game creation because you have now the ability to deconstruct them and appreciate them in, in greater depth. Oh, those are fantastic. Those are great. And honestly, if you had asked me the same question, I would not have given the same three answers. <laughs> so how... What a wonderful sort of place and time to be in when there are, as you said, so many different examples of how social is fundamentally changing things when it comes to storytelling. So sure. really fantastic. But so then how does that tie into, you know, what you call the collective journey? Maybe I'll just, you can do a high level summary of the collective journey mm. and help people understand in summary your thoughts about what's going on when it comes to how tech is changing storytelling forever. Sure. As the aughts proceeded, I began to realize that traditional narratives and the, the weight 
of ownership over uh, traditional narratives was starting to change. Up until the 21st century, if you wanted to tell a story that could reach um, hundreds of thousands, millions, or billions of people, you had to be in the highest decimal point of percentage, a fraction of, of a percentage. You had to be in control of the media. And what I was starting to realize, of course, and maybe I wasn't that evolved before the 21st century, was that people who were in control of the media were really in control of our perception of reality. The stories that surround us are the stories we believe. Mm-hmm. And if and that's why it was so difficult to crack that kind of monolithic presentation of narrative to huge populations. In the early aughts, I began to see the rise of, of social media and the, the fact that you can t- take someone else's narrative and tell your own stories, things like fan fiction and fan mm-hmm. films, but also to start to self-organize and become a fan base, become a, a powerful mover of, of ardor, passion for the intellectual property. So although something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer was got tiny ratings on right. on the the WB you had these fans who were so passionate about Buffy that Sarah Michelle Gellar showed up on the cover of Entertainment Weekly and so this kind of geek love was altering the perception of properties that had were perceived to be very minor at the same time in the in the social the social element people who had not had voices who didn't show up in big media people of color people who don't live in the United States That's they right. were able to to start expressing themselves through the internet and through social media as well i saw i projected forward that this had the potential to shift balances and to empower individuals and groups of people who at, at that point had not had a voice, mm-hmm. really, not had a participation in these greater narratives. This was not what was really interesting and what gets to ultimately the answer to your question, was these tended not to be driven by individual heroes. Uh, I did not see the, the Martin Luther King of spontaneous, self-organized social systems. There were few leaders uh, of the fan clubs, as there used to be leaders of fan clubs. Uh, There was just the Bronze, which was a community of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans. And, And I began to see collective narratives moving back and forth across the internet and gaining power. And they were not observing the standard Joseph Campbell structure of the hero's journey. That's right. They, they were nonlinear. They didn't focus on gender. They didn't need some old man with a beard <laughs> to, to instruct them. Sorry, Gandalf. <laughs> and and they didn't they didn't even necessarily need to resort to to conflict, overt conflict and violence, which the hero's journey is pretty a physical and psychological a violence was a standard in the hero's journey, and and these did not uh, do that. What is that? And how is it distinct from the hero's journey? I began to think about that in the late aughts, particularly when I started to notice that there could be problems. If you learned how to manipulate this spontaneous self-organized social systems, you are going to uh, be able to assert uh, enormous uh, power. 
Wow, that, okay, so <laughs> that really ties in to my next question. So some of these self-organizing networks, these collective journeys are absolutely life and perception bending, right? They become all encompassing and just embrace their community uh, so deeply and, and completely that they absolutely change people's lives, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And they're not always the most open and welcoming of others. So the one that jumps out to me the most recently is the whole Wall Street bets kind of GameStop thing. And I clicked that link and I was like, oh, what's this all about? And I went in and I was just like, what are these guys talking about? I know a little bit about GameStop and I know a little bit about stocks, but I don't know what language these guys are speaking. And I didn't post in that subreddit. And if I did, I'm pretty sure I probably would have gotten flamed right off the board. Is there something about us versus them when it comes to the collective journey? Does the us versus them somehow reinforce the narrative? In in a collective journey narrative, of course, there there can be this perception of us versus them, protagonists and antagonists, and that's human nature, unfortunately. But a, a collective journey storyteller or somebody who is observing collective journey narratives in action needs to step back far enough to realize that that antagonism, the overt conflict, will endanger the entire system, as it often does, and and can lead to catastrophic results, either catastrophic personally or global conflict. What's interesting about that kind of Wall Street GameStop thing is that you had a group of, of people who who saw that there were inequities, unfairnesses about the way that the system worked and decided to hinge their response to it on something that they were affectionate about mm-hmm. and nostalgic about. GameStop, let's face it, it's time is done. They ignored yep. the signs. And yet it was the place of our dreams. We would go there and, and be able to purchase these video games that we loved. So for a time when we were younger, it was awesome to go to GameStop. So to to illustrate their dissatisfaction with the way that the system was operating, they, they protested by pumping a GameStop, which really annoyed the system, the powers Absolutely. that be in the system. And and that's the powers that be are not necessarily the system itself. The system itself is flawed. That's mm-hmm. why there are these inequities. <laughs> so as a collective journey narrative, you got this moment of rebellion, this moment of the of exposing uh, the flaws in this system. The problem with that narrative is that it peters out and we're not sure where it's going to go next. So if it's a simple act of rebellion and they're going to go do something else tomorrow, then it, it's not much of a story in the long run. But if others more closely examine what happens and we see more and more of these kinds of blows, then either the the people who are defending the flawed system are going to change laws and assert themselves and lock in mm-hmm. the flaws, or, or something's going to change. And and that's cool that there's even the chance that something can change. Does it ever it's, does it ever blow your mind to stop and think that the same underpinnings and social effects of writing fan fiction for Buffy are basically possibly going to fundamentally change the economics of how the stock market is managed? And like trillions of dollars are basically impacted by the same kinds of 
communications and communities as basically just get together and talk about whether or not Harry Potter should be gay. Like, it's just, it's so weird that the same systems power to fundamentally differing, kind of orders of magnitude differing things in terms of societal impact. Ben, it was, it's, it was weird some years ago when the dots started to be set down in between Buffy and Star Trek fandom before it and, and the Arab Spring after it. So spontaneous uh, self-organized systems that are leveraging social media to, to cry for freedom across several Several countries at once to spontaneously put an absolute ending on the civil war in Colombia to to stand up to authoritarian uh, oppression in Myanmar to the point where they have to turn off the internet in in, in order to regain some semblance of control and of course that's not going to last yeah, because exactly. you have to turn back on the internet so it's there have been a lot of complaints and uh, and certainly there are tremendous abuses but but I, I would I would gamble in the long run that this is a good thing because these voices are allowed to speak who were quiet. And that's what they have in common with the nerds of the 1990s. Right. <laughs> we, we were tucked away in the corner of the schoolyard and getting hit with dodgeballs. That's right. Now we control the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. <laughs> And the billions of dollars associated with it. Okay, so you've talked so many times about fans and fandom. Let's define them because I want to dig a little bit deeper into sort of what that all means. So how do, you how do you describe a fan and how do you describe fandom? By definition, a, a fan is an audience member for whom the narrative that they're enjoying deeply resonates. Okay, so somebody likes something, but just liking it doesn't quite make you a fan because a lot of people like a lot of things. So the casual use of, well, I'm a fan uh, of it is not quite the, f the definition that we use in our business. A fan is an audience, members, audience member who loves something to the point where they do something about it. Oh, okay. Okay? They are expressing their ardor. That could be posting about how much you liked WandaVision on Facebook. The next mm -hmm. morning, it, it could mean joining a group uh, or a, a, a Reddit uh, node or things like that. When a number of people who are active about their love for something form a kind of group or even are acting generally in tandem, like going to a stadium to mm -hmm. cheer on their favorite sport, that's a fandom, okay. uh, a, a group of people who are actively expressing how they feel about your your story. And by the way, that is positive and negative. So fans can say terrible things about you. <laughs> Absolutely. And so going back to your description about the sort of collective journey and these communities, these sort of spontaneous self-organizing communities, to me, I read those as fans. Is Do you agree? Like, are the participants of a collective journey effectively a fan of the theme of that collective journey, whether that be Buffy the Vampire Slayer or GameStop stocks? Or Black Lives Matter. It's the, the commonality is emotion, is feeling very strongly enough to be motivated to participate. One doesn't say that one is a fan of Black Lives Matter or even of GameStop, but they, they feel uh, so strongly 
that they are going to act in tandem with others. And that is, that can be very powerful. But also, so you're right, you don't say you are a fan of Black Lives Matter, but if you support the movement, but don't do anything about it, right? You're not willing to change anything. You're not willing to take any action. Mm -hmm. You just passively support it or believe in it then I would argue that it's questionable how much of an impact you're actually having. It's the act of doing something, of protesting, of posting in support, of making a change in your life, of something that I think gives that sort of parallel to the example you gave, the definition you gave earlier of being a fan. It's not enough to like something. You have to actually do something about it. That's true, which distinguishes fan from audience. An audience can watch something on Netflix and be counted passively (laughs) as a stream. But if they do nothing else, then that's all they are. Yeah. I I saw just a quick sort of sideline, but it's connected. I saw this brilliant BBC short a few months ago. You can just search for it. I'm sure you'd find it someone doing a short explanation on the difference between being non-racist and anti-racist. And really, in many ways, it was basically the difference between being an audience and a fan. Do you passively accept that racism is bad? Fine. You're non-racist. Are you willing to stand up and do something about it and actually change actions and change people's perceptions and call out if someone says something racist? Okay, now you're an anti-racist. So this dividing line of passive versus active seems to be a commonality here that I'm, I'm seeing in a lot of different places. But as you said, it can be negative. I When I was Working at Ubisoft back in the days, we used to do developer videos and sometimes they'd put a camera in my face and they'd say, Ben, talk about whatever, Prince of Persia. And I'd do my thing and then I'd be like, oh, I wonder what people said. And I'd go onto the website and it would be, who is this loser? Who let this kid in? Shut this kid up. He doesn't know anything. Oh my God, he's ruining Prince of Persia. Bring back Jordan Mechner, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And there was this mantra, right? Don't read the comments. You know, everyone, oh, don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. It, It seems to be, it's almost a trope, right? In the game developer industry, it's so many people, so many developers have just had their egos crushed by reading the comments that it's like a lot of them have just given up on it. And yet I think you'd argue against that. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And you mentioned briefly above how important you thought it was to engage with fans, even if it was negative. Why do you think it's so important that creators engage deeply with their fans? I think it's vital. And and look, I'm sensitive to the sensitivity of a creator. And, uh, and so it's not necessarily advisable for every creator to be uh, a completely open to that kind of feedback. But it does mean that creator needs to be surrounded by a team, a supporters, a stakeholders, who will do that and will listen to to the fans with great intent. And here's why. And look, um, if I didn't listen, when I bought a, a, a blue box of Dungeons & Dragons for $9.99 from Brentano's in the Queen's Mall. <laughs> I'm going to assume that wasn't yesterday. <laughs> when I was 14 years old and, and I lived in a, a working class neighborhood where just no one was going to sit down and play Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) with me. So after studying it 
and and understanding what an opportunity this was for me to enjoy myself telling stories and being able to enjoy stories. I just didn't want to do it alone. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted that connection. I wanted to, to for someone to look into my eyes when I was talking about these fantastical ideas and so forth. So I was going to have to reach out. And so you weigh the desperation of loneliness uh, against the shyness and the hypersensitivity of a 14-year-old nerd. And those are two very powerful forces at play and in mm -hmm. conflict within me. But loneliness, that, that was worse. That was, uh, that was the worst fate. And the fear and anger and passion that I had forced me to come into contact with these guys who were like heavy metal dudes, you know, rock and roll guys, the, okay. the ones with the long hair who, who loved the, the albums that had skulls Frank Frazetta and, yeah, paintings exactly. on them and skulls and, and halberds and broadswords and owls that looked like they were going to rip your eyes out, the Rush album. Uh, cover and and I figured that was my best chance. There, <laughs> and I um and I talked to them. You know, I, I worked up the courage and and found that when I asked them questions and, and listened to their responses without uh, clouding my mind with what I was going to say next, mm -hmm. but be genuinely interested in what they had to say, that was so meaningful that it built a, a strong enough bond for me to get them to come to my house listen to Pink Floyd, and play Dungeons & Dragons. So that was the one of the greatest lessons I learned in my life, the notion of deep listening. Listening, I call it regeneratively, where I'm able to take your words and infuse them into my narrative and speak them back to you, maybe in slightly different words, but clearly enough for you to understand that I understand you. That builds a mm -hmm. tremendous bond. I used that when I was developing the Torah Dinosaur Hunter series and then mm -hmm. Magic the Gathering. And then I used it when I walked through the doors of Mattel to land the Hot Wheels account that launched uh, Starlight Runner as a transmedia production company. I I'm not going to assert my narrative on your toy cars. I'm going to find out what the narrative of those toy cars genuinely is. And you find out about that by studying the company, studying the customer, and, and understanding the aspirational values of that product so that you can build a story on top of those values. That's why, to this day, grown adults encounter me on Twitter, call me through Zoom, and weep. <laughs> they cry because... I, I represent something powerful in their childhood because they love that Hot Wheels cartoon so much. <laughs> so wow. do you see what I'm saying about, Absolutely, about the power of listening? I do, I do, I do. But so, so you have to be brave. That was what I was trying to say. And the brave, you, you, so the braveness I love and talking to fans or talking to stakeholders, regenerative listening, using their words, their brand, their attachment to the brand, or the property, the IP, back at them. I totally buy that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, where there's a subtle difference that I'd love to dig into is that can be done behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. I, I can go to the I can go to the the Star Wars Reddit 
and say, okay, this guy's smart, this guy's smart, this guy's smart, this woman, she really knows what she's doing. Take those four people, get a little focus group, listen to them regeneratively, like really deeply understand what it is they have to say. Take those lessons back to the dev team and say, okay, guys, listen, I spoke to four people. They had some really good insight. Here's what we need to change about our upcoming trailer. Mm-hmm. And quote unquote, they represent the community. That's very different than going to the Reddit thread and saying, I hear you hate the trailer. I hear you hate the trailer. I hear you think I should die. I hear you think (laughs) I should die. I hear Mm -hmm. you threaten my wife. And yet I'm going to somehow validate your feelings in a public forum. Those are two very different things. And where does that sort of... Because to validate fandom publicly and to listen to them regeneratively publicly... It doesn't just validate them as an individual, it validates them in the eye of the community as well. So in some ways, there's almost like this extra value to that. And I'm wondering how that fits into your thought process. It's it's a, a very well stated point. And, and, and there's always this, uh, this chance of conflict. Well, it's mm-hmm. always going to happen. From my personal perspective, I didn't run out of the house with my box of Dungeons and Dragons and suddenly become the Pied Piper, mm-hmm. <laughs> leading all those guys back into my house to play. I heard the words, and excuse me, I heard the words, fuck off. At least once. <laughs> A lot. Not, not once. Not, and, but, but the thing is that I was raised in the projects. A, a, a nerd who's raised in the projects is going to hear fuck off all the time. It's and Tuesday. Because it's Tuesday. And much worse derivations, by the way, because it does get pretty personal. So the thing that I had to learn very early on was that words are words. And that if generally, if you're cautious, you don't want to get into some physical altercation, that that fuck off tends to mean what you got to do something more to earn my trust. Yeah. You know, you have to represent something aspirational. And um, th- that, to me, for me, starts with a kind of listening to make sure I'm speaking in the language that they understand, at least initially. I could introduce the the Dungeons and Dragons terms later, and then in um, in invalidating their aspirational feelings and in, in finding the values that we had in common. Disney is engaged in a battle with Star Wars fans, a, a pocket of Star Wars fans, because they don't like the the super left wing woke element in some of the recent content and in the way that the company has behaved toward those actors and things like that. And and the result of that is an ongoing conflict. The, the company is condemning those people and engaged in a kind of battle with them. And it's so fascinating to me because here's a, a, a fandom, even that pocket core fandom, loved a, a series of movies that conveyed aspirational values. They all wanted to be Jedi. They loved Princess Leia. So what happened? Where is this disconnect and, and, and what can be done uh, about it? Y- you don't necessarily leap into the middle of Reddit and start arguing with these people. You, you figure out where uh, the disconnect happened. And, and some of your, and do a, a fearless moral inventory. Who am I? What happened to make my franchise feel unsafe to a, a large segment of the population? And can, is there anything that can be done about that? That's what a regenerative listening really does mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really is about, taking some kind of action and having that action be reflected in the narrative. Mm. 
Interesting. I think in gaming, we have this role we call the community manager. And a community manager can be you know, as light as someone who posts videos from developer blogs to, to, to the fans. It can be as light as that. And it can be as deeply integrated as, as you're saying, someone who is daily interacting with these fans and helping nurture them, shape them, hear them, make sure that the conflict doesn't spin out of control and make sure that everyone feels deeply connected to this, this narrative, to this story world that they're so passionate about. I think community management is probably increasingly becoming uh, super hypercritical and probably a real dividing line between the haves and the have-nots. Great community management and how it can nurture the collective journey is probably absolutely critical for the next generation of story worlds and fandom to thrive. But Ben, that, that can only be truly effective if you are truly and fundamentally aware of the underlying narrative behind the story world, the foundational messages, the archetypes, the aspirational drivers of that story world, because you can bend and, and acknowledge flaws in, in the system that you're representing, but there are certain things that, that where you're going to die on that hill, and these are the, the underlying messages, the deep philosophy of the world that you represent. That's immutable because yeah. that is the, creative, the core creative vision. Yeah, you can't um, just copy-paste. You can't just drop someone in there and say, be the world's right. best community manager and manage the fandom, please. Thanks, bye. That's it, exactly. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Sounds like uh, side business and community management training is probably on the horizon <laughs> somewhere. Okay. We talked a lot about collective journey. We talked a lot about fandom. Those were my one, my one and two. Let's jump into point three, metaverse and multiverse. So obviously metaverse gets a ton of buzz these days. Everyone's talking about the metaverse. There's also a ton of talk about the multiverse. And some people probably use the terms interchangeably. I don't see it that way. Can you define them as you understand them? And just let's see if we're saying the same things when we talk about meta versus multi. Sure. And this is probably as nerdy as anything we're going to be talking about. Uh, but. So this is, I think I'll just change the, the name of the podcast to The Nerd Show. Uh, multiverses, as we see them, are multiple realities or parallel worlds within a fictional universe. Okay. Okay. In Star Trek, there's the mirror universe mm -hmm. <laughs> or the Kelvin universe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, those universes exist within the continuum of, of the Star Trek story world. Okay. I work on Ultraman. Mm -hmm. That's my most recent super project. And Ultraman tended to reboot itself in a different universe every few series. There are very Transformers. <laughs> yes, yeah, very much like Transformers, right? And yet, at, at certain key points in the super arc of the Ultraman narrative, it is acknowledged that all those worlds exist and persist, even though we're not in those worlds, so that Ultraman characters, Ultraman superheroes, can visit each other. Mm -hmm. And in times of titanic crisis <laughs> can unite to save the multiverse yeah as as happened recently in ultra galaxy fight the absolute conspiracy all right good to know <laughs> all right so those are multiverses metaverses 
are super realities that link otherwise unrelated fictional universes. Got it. Okay. One of my favorite metaverse narratives was who framed Roger Rabbit. There was such cheer and joy in the mixing and matching of those Warner Brothers and Disney cartoon characters. And there was a a really strong central narrative that united them. So it was just a great story. But metaverses in Mario Kart, where Nintendo is pulling characters from all its different video game franchises. Fortnite is where we're getting into the uh, popularization of metaverses because it implies that there is a kind of neutral zone where virtually anything Mm -hmm. from pop culture can stumble its way in, throw a concert, make millions of dollars, (laughs) and and then leave. And Um, and Chun-Li and Wolverine and Ryu and Flash can all just hang out and listen to Travis Scott, and that's just okay. That is is it. And uh, and next up will be this notion of non-fungible tokens, this this kind of uh, super collector uh, world where intellectual properties are compatible because they're within in the same system or the same game system and, and, and so forth. So just for a second, let's talk about a singular metaverse. What message do you have for Hasbro? Hasbro, they, right? They own G.I. Joe, is that is, is it Hasbro? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so what's the message for Hasbro? Is it we shouldn't endorse our heroes mingling with Barbie because that somehow weakens the, whatever, the alpha fantasy of being a soldier of fortune and whatever, saving the world, or is it, yeah, whatever, man, Barbie and whatever, Snake Eyes, yeah, they can totally go on a date. That that absolutely should be kind of part of our world. As the owner of the IP, as the, what does as the metaverse the, do? As the owner of a toy company, if I go to a park and look in the sandbox and I see everybody else's toys in that sandbox but not mine, I'm going to be disquieted. So the, it is inevitable, let's face it, so... What you want to try and do, of course, is to assert quality control yes. and, and control over the, the narrative. And that means that, that there are going to have to be a creative and technological manifestations to essentially do what I did in the bedroom to get Dracula to fight a brontosaurus. We know some of uh, this stuff already, right? Because when we played uh, Dungeons and Dragons and wanted to import a character who was operating under a different game system, GURPS, or some other role-playing game system, you needed a conversion chart. These were a set of numbers and statistics, remember? To allow for your character to take on the statistics of the host world. So that's one of, to me, I loved that challenge. The notion that in order for us to agree with each other, to allow for uh, these different toys to be placed in the same sandbox that we had to uh, we have to establish a set of rules and a, and a set of ways to make sure that our intellectual property is is maintains its integrity and and is technically compatible but also equitable to everyone else's man if if anyone from DC and Marvel is listening i could really use uh, some of those cheat sheets cuz my 6 year old son's absolute favorite <laughs> thing to do is to go for a walk and talk about who would win in a fight is it batman or iron man that's the latest one right is it batman or iron man and i'm like they come from different worlds have different powers and he's like i want to know who would win in a fight he needs the cheat sheet 
he needs the <laughs> he needs to understand how how Batman's uh, strength compares to uh, whatever Iron Man's tech. You can tell them that if they're alone in an arena, Batman may have some trouble. Yeah. But if Batman. <laughs> Is in the Bat Cave and has some time he's, to think. He's got some time. Iron to plan Man is for doomed. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this idea of taking stuff out of a metaverse and maybe porting it over to another one. I want to just talk about the kind of plurality problem in general, whether it be inside of a meta or even across metaverses. Right? You know, if I jump into Fortnite, I'm not the Wolverine. I'm not Logan. I'm a Wolverine, and so are you and your friend. It's like Oprah, and you're mm-hmm. a Wolverine, and you're a Wolverine, and you're a Wolverine. Do we care? Do players care? What are your thoughts about that? And then to the next step, if I want to take that Wolverine out of Fortnite and bring him over to whatever, some Animal Crossing 3 type experience, how does that work in your mind? Right now, it's uh, the Wild West of free-for-all. And because of the novelty, gamers are not minding that as much. I think two things are going to happen. One is narrative design. The, the notion of telling metaverse stories, which I think is a, a, a fantastic and, and fascinating opportunity, creative opportunity, so that you can portray these characters or even your own character and do it meaningfully so that uh, you're exhibiting aspects of that character's persona or mix of that character's persona and your own and, and, and participating meaningfully in an ongoing metaverse narrative. If that's going to happen, you do kind of want yourself not to be the one of a hundred Wolverines. You want to be the Wolverine for that particular story, just like Hugh Jackman is the Wolverine for a certain number of stories. And in order for that to happen, the technology is going to have to catch up. And I believe it almost has because of blockchain, because of NFT uh, uh, technology, you can, there can be something unique about your particular uh, Wolverine. There can be ways to power up, to level up, to gain equipment and have that Wolverine be distinct from the others. There can be ways to make you the only Wolverine in this particular meta-narrative. And and that sense of uniqueness, I, I think, is one of the biggest breakthroughs in entertainment technology of the century. It really is going to, to make a difference. We lost uniqueness with the advent of the ability for digital, digital ubiquity. Ubiquity, exactly. We lost that. So the value in collecting something, the value in pursuing something specific that you can have that nobody else can have, and that maybe you can sell because it is it is gaining in value, is uh, being reintroduced. Uh, again, thanks to video games, because of course, video games were the first time ever that a a value was placed on a digital, digital item, asset, probably yeah. a weapon. Yeah, probably. <laughs> a skin and a Counter-Strike gun, probably. There you go. So that's a big breakthrough. Yeah, NFTs are obviously absolutely popping. I, I'm going to do a whole episode on crypto blockchain stuff in a mm-hmm. couple of weeks. I won't say with who just yet because I'm not sure which episode is going to come out first. And I don't want to confuse people, but I am going to do a full episode on that. And I suspect expect that NFTs will take up a big chunk of our conversation but just just for everyone's sake I'm going to I'm going to do just a couple of definitions here to make sure everyone understands sure. why what you just said is so impactful so when we say NFTs we mean non-fungible tokens a non-fungible token is it's a component of blockchain effectively if you mint 
an NFT, what you are doing is you are owning one particular chain on the blockchain, one particular address on the black blockchain that you are digitally signing and claiming complete ownership over that can then be permanently connected to a digital asset. Jack Dorsey's tweet just, I think it's at two and a half million, his first tweet ever, which he minted an NFT for it and, 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 and sold it on an open marketplace or auctioned it off on an open marketplace. And it's now trading for more than two million. So what you're saying is in some not too distant future, I make my Wolverine character and I mint an NFT on the blockchain to say, this is my version of Wolverine. His third claw on the left hand is pink. And this is why my Wolverine is different from your Wolverine, where they're all black or whatever it is. And if you, as a player, want to jump into a different game, hypothetically, you could point to that blockchain version of Wolverine and assuming there's interoperability, say, I want to play this version of Wolverine, not that version of Wolverine, because this version of Wolverine represents me. He's got my sort of whatever mapping to him. And if you reach some sort of high level and some incredibly powerful, whatever, adamantium plus upgrade Mm -hmm. or something, you can sell that Wolverine to another player. I guess the proceeds of that probably divvied up somewhat between you, the player who had this character, and I guess the IP owner and possibly some other stakeholders intermediaries as well. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's super, super important. People don't realize some of my my peers... (laughs) are like, it's nonsense to, to place this kind of value on a tweet. And, and the thing is, uh, it's nonsense to place value on a piece of paper that's in your pocket. Yeah. That has a, it's all the, just a story we tell ourselves. one dollar. It's a story we tell ourselves. So yeah. if this generation makes a common agreement that those things have that kind of value, then that's it. We're off and running. And and I don't believe these are going away. This is becoming uh, more and more powerful because we th- there's a human aspirational desire to be affiliated with something unique. Mm. We don't want to be the 500th Wolverine. We want to be that dude with the pink. The spike. one pink claw. <laughs> the one pink claw. All right, I got to go buy some Ethereum. Jeff, this is amazing. This is so what I wanted to cover. It's been wide ranging. And what I find fascinating about your worldview is how, again, The nerds in the basement are taking over the world, not just because of our interests or our technology or whatnot, but because we became intimately familiar with these, what have ended up becoming foundational technologies that shape geopolitics and finance and entire markets. And to me, the fact that fan fiction can help the kids of today prepare to be the absolute movers and shakers driving forward positive change in tomorrow is just a wonderfully compelling idea that I frankly learned from you and reading your blog last year. And so I want to thank you for taking the time to share that thought and insight with me on this podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ben. Let me make a point on that because I think that's so important what you just said. It it was a a trick of the light, a a series of of unrelated but coalescing circumstances that caused me to be jarred out of the complacency 
of the fantastical realities that I enjoyed so much. I believe that what you're talking about needs to be taught. I think that a lot of people are not aware of what it is that we're talking about. So, you know, it behooves us as storytellers and as teachers effectively to spread the word that all of this is possible and that we can be empowered to continue reconciling with ourselves and and the rest of the world so that there's less conflict, so there's yeah. less pain, so that we can be more creative and productive. And that's what I think your podcast has been doing. It's been wonderful, and I very much appreciate the work that, that you've been doing. Oh, well, thank you. What a wonderful closing message. We will do lots of them, and we'll bring you back for sure. And I can't wait to continue the conversation with you. But for now, we should probably say our goodbyes. So again, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. Fantastic. Ben and, and all of you listeners, Ben, I hope there's a way to, to jump onto my social media through the, the, the podcast post. Absolutely. We'll, we'll in the title card, you'll see we link to all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, uh, people- I if, welcome if, you all. If you want to learn more about Jeff, Starlight Runner, The Collective Journey, we will put links to all of that in, in, in the blog post about this. Good deal. All Thanks right. so much, Ben. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon, Jeff. You got it. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining. Thank you, listeners, for allowing Jeff and I to go deep, deep, deep into nerd territory. It was really a lot of fun, uh, not just to learn and, and get to pick Jeff's brains on, on all of these really interesting subjects, but really just kind of have a bit of a kindred spirit who I could geek out with on comic books and video games and story worlds and, and all that stuff that I, I, I enjoy so much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please, uh, you know, stay tuned. We've got a lot of other really exciting stuff coming up, some, some really exciting guests. Uh, as always, you know, like, subscribe, whatever. Recommend to your friends. Uh, you know, to, if, if, if you enjoy this podcast, you know, the word of mouth. Um, you know, sharing it with others is is really the best way to show support um, because, uh, you, you know, we're doing this for the, the intention of kind of driving forward these conversations about the major trends that sort of move entertainment and move this industry uh, in some really interesting new directions. And we, we plan to do it for a long time still. So hopefully you will stick with us. As always, thank you so much. And have a good evening.